Good morning. I am more than eager to see so many of you next week uh, ready for these days of separation to be behind us, uh, eager to lead us in prayer in just a few minutes for our time together next week, as well as for those who will, for various reasons, be unable to gather with us next week. But here we are, in a sense, uh, together but not together, uh, to sit under uh, the teaching of God's Word to see what God has for us uh, today. And I want to begin with an introduction, as I normally do. Uh, I want to take stock of what's going on around us as best I can. Much like I regularly seek to draw our attention to the outrage that is abortion, I have sought at times to draw our attention to the atrocity of racism. Earlier this month, after two vigilantes a few months ago killed Ahmad Arbery in a small town in South Georgia, well, I led us to pray. I didn't lead us to pray because I think Mr. Arbery was an innocent man. I'm a Christian. I don't believe anyone is innocent. I believe we all deserve death and eternal judgment for our sins. No one is innocent. That's Christianity 101. Racism exists in every state in our country and in every country in the world. And at times, this racism leads to acts of injustice. I led us to pray in part because this state is my home, and I am not an outsider. Whatever the internal motives of the men who killed Mr. Arbery, racism once again moved from the background to the foreground of our minds, and it did so from our own backyard. It shook up many of our own church members, and so I led us to pray. The murder of unborn babies takes place each and every day. Members of Mount Vernon devote their time, their, their resources, their prayers to ending the scourge of abortion, a sin enacted behind closed doors in butcher shops that look like medical offices. Most of our neighbors are silent on this topic because their conscience about abortion has been seared. If you are a Christian, you know abortion is wrong. And you say so. There's no question. This is how we keep in step with the truth of the gospel. If you are a Christian, well, you know racism is wrong. I don't need to convince you of that. There's no question. But where is racism today? What does it look like? Was Mr. Arbery killed because he was black? Was Mr. Floyd killed because he was black? I don't know the hearts of those men outside of Brunswick who waited for Mr. Arbery. I don't know the hearts of the police officers who watched as a knee squeezed out the life of Mr. Floyd. I wasn't there. I don't know the details. I'm neither the judge nor the jury. When I bring up an issue for prayer, it's not because I know all the details surrounding events that make the news, but this much I know. 
Not everyone is convinced racism is an issue today. About 10 years ago in the foyer of the church, in the midst of casual conversation, I was told racism does not exist anymore. The woman who said this bore no ill will. She loves the Lord. But she grew up shielded from the atrocities of Jim Crow. She, like me, grew up being told the best thing you can do is try not to see the color of a person's skin, to be colorblind. In her mind, the days of racism were over, and she's not alone in thinking that. And yet a few years ago, I had a conversation with an African-American friend, a male friend who is a member of this church and who witnesses whites cross the street when he's out for an early morning jog. A few years ago, I was at a, a pastor's meeting right here in Atlanta, joining together with other pastors, thinking about another congregation whose pulpit was open, uh, much like you were 12 years ago looking for a pastor. This congregation was looking for a pastor, and a, a group of pastors in Atlanta, we got together to strategize and pray about who might be able to fill this pulpit, who might we be able to encourage to apply to this small congregation in Atlanta. And an African-American brother at that meeting, a fellow pastor, asked the question, well, would they call a black man? And the answer, sadly, was no. At that time, that congregation would not have called a black man to be their pastor. And each year of my life brings more stories like this to light. Now, my guess is my friend in the foyer hasn't or hadn't heard many stories like this, or at least not enough to convince her that there really is a problem today. And because she herself isn't black, she has never known what it's like to feel like a nobody, as some, not all, but some, of my African-American friends are tempted to feel. Tiny acts of racism endured over the course of one's life can leave one feeling invisible, as if nobody really cares, as if no one is really willing to understand that even the smallest indignities over the course of years, add up to create a huge wound. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm not getting into politics. I left that arena long ago. I pray that God would raise up wonderful, godly Christian lawyers and judges and analysts and legislators, senators and presidents. Men and women able to devote themselves to policies that promote justice, I want to see that happen. One way we love our neighbor is by voting for candidates who will pursue righteousness on every front. Proverbs 14.34 is as true today as ever. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We should want a righteous nation. And so maybe some of you watching, maybe some of you kids watching will grow up to be lawyers and judges and journalists, politicians, maybe even president. Maybe you will use your influence to lead our society into greater degrees of righteousness. But my job is to lead the church, to lead us to see our own sin, whether it's our own indifference to abortion or our own indifference to racism, 
I want to lead us to believe in our bones that only genuine repentance and faith in the crucified and risen Savior will make us as a church what we ought to be. If Christ is our Lord and the gospel is the heartbeat of our lives, we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we will love our neighbors as ourselves, whether our neighbor is still in the womb, whether he's an illegal immigrant, whether he lost his life under the knee of a police officer, or whether he's the police officer who went too far and is about very likely to lose everything, nearly everything he holds dear. I bring all this up because neighbors in Atlanta are cleaning up the glass around the CNN Center. I bring this up because the mayor of Atlanta is figuring out how to replace damaged police cars. I bring this up because last night my son, who works at a mall, had to come home early for fear of riots. I bring this up because though we are one very small church in a very big world, we do have the answer to racism, and he is Christ. And so today, with our country in shock, I think we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and look at Christ. Each week, we've been examining the rooms in our own spiritual house that require self-examination, and that's an important exercise. But this morning, this morning that I pray is our, our last morning scattered. Instead of thinking about how you can pray for yourself, see what Jesus prayed before facing the greatest injustice humanity ever served. See how Jesus prayed the night before he entered into the Garden of Gethsemane as he began that painful journey to the cross. His prayer is found in John chapter 17. It's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all Christians at all times. Right? It's a prayer for the church that we would be united and that our own unity, in the midst of everything from the crisis of the pandemic to the crisis of injustice, that our unity would be a vision for the world of the love of God. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his own disciples who were alive at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. He knew that they were about to witness his crucifixion, that they wouldn't immediately be able to make sense of it, that they would be discouraged because of it. And so he prayed for them. He prayed that they would be protected by the Father, that they would persevere in the faith because he knew they were about to be tempted by the evil one to give up, and so Jesus intercedes for them. But our focus this morning is on verses 1 through 5. Here, Jesus prays for himself. He prays aloud so his disciples can hear, and he prays for his glory. On the final day that we are apart, on the morning after curfew, with glass on the streets and racism on our mind, I want us to see Jesus pray for his glory. I want us to think less about ourselves. Oh, I need, I need to think less about myself. I know that's a funny thing to say after leading us for so many weeks to examine our own hearts. 
But today, I want us to think less about ourselves and more about our Lord. We aren't the answer. Jesus is. And it's not that I don't want to make any application to us, but that's not my primary goal this morning. My primary goal this morning is not to make personal application directly to you. I suppose you can say that today I want you to remember why the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There are three truths about glory to draw from these verses. First, Jesus desires glory. Jesus desires glory. Second, Jesus deserves glory. Jesus deserves glory. And third, Jesus shares glory. And so may God use these words to stoke in your heart a longing to gather again with God's people. And may he use these words to teach us how to live in a world divided. Look again, if you would, at John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First, Jesus desires glory. Now, the words that Jesus speaks seem straightforward enough. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Jesus unpacks that request in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying for glory. Now, specifically, he is praying that he would be glorified. Now, you might think that Jesus is praying for praise and for honor. He's praying for the applause of humanity. And certainly, he deserves all of that. And, and Jesus will be praised. Make no mistake about that. Revelation is filled with choruses of angels and church members praising Christ. Revelation 4 Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So yes, Jesus will get the praise of his people. When you and I hear this word glory, though, that's, that's really primarily, if not exclusively, what we think about. Right? Millions of Americans these past few weeks have been watching the documentary of Michael Jordan's storied career with the Chicago Bulls. We see Jordan clinging to the Larry O'Brien NBA championship trophy six times. And when we think about those moments, we, we don't think about his hours in the gym. We don't think about the, the pain and the sacrifice. We, we think of the applause, crowds roaring, champagne flowing for him. Right? That's our picture of glory, the, the praise of, of others. Well, I will never be the goat, the greatest of all time. 
I'd be happy to be the, the goot, the greatest of one time. This is the kind of glory that we tend to seek, the glory that comes when we are praised for something by someone. When news of Jesus began to spread, many wanted to believe in him. They found the gospel that he preached to be interesting and to be attractive, but they wouldn't follow him because they knew that following him meant ridicule and even persecution. So they stayed at home and they let Jesus go on his way without them. And in John chapter 12, verse 43, we're told why. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Right? Jesus wanted glory, but not that kind of glory. Right? Not the glory that comes from man. Look again at verse 5. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. He has always been God the Son. He has always been glorious. Before there were ever people to applaud, there was God existing in His triune glory. And because Jesus is God, He has always shared in the Father's glory. The triune God is love and holiness and beauty and majesty and simplicity and power. And so much like a, a flower doesn't need to be photographed in order to be beautiful, God doesn't need to be applauded by you in order to be glorious. His splendor is part of his very nature. The applause isn't, isn't the glory. His brilliance, his magnificence, right? His greatness is the glory. And so when God the Son took on flesh, he lost nothing of his divine nature. He remained fully God, and therefore he remained fully and always glorious. But when Jesus took the form of a servant by becoming human, well, something happened. The Puritan pastor John Owen said, it's as if the sun, S-U-N, had been eclipsed by the moon. The sun still shines in all its glory, but that glory is eclipsed. It's covered up by the shadow of the moon. And in John 17, Jesus is praying about and looking forward to the end of the eclipse. We call that day the exaltation of Christ, the day Christ was restored to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And though he remains God the Son incarnate, though he will always be God the Son incarnate, his glory is no longer eclipsed by his humanity. Now, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is clothed with the glory he knew from the very beginning. And this is what Jesus wants, glory. Not the praise of man, but the presence of God, his Father. Look at verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence. I'm reminded of the parable of the prodigal son 
Jesus was no prodigal. Jesus never sinned, not at all. The Son of God incarnate never had a lustful thought, never a sinister motive, never a bitter attitude. He lived each day of his life purely, perfectly. And wouldn't you admit that, that God living on earth is a far greater scandal than the prodigal son eating pig slop? Even though Jesus never sinned, on the cross, the Father counted him to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So isn't it, isn't it safe to say that the glory of God was quite literally dragged through the mud and blood of a fallen world. What happened when the prodigal son returned home? The father said, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now this is the exaltation of the prodigal son. How much better, how much greater was the return of Christ to his father? Christ returning to the presence of his Father. And he knew once again to the full glory of the Lord. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But let's not forget, it's not just the resurrection we celebrate, but Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God the Father the answer to his prayer that day. We gather together and we say to one another, my Savior is alive and my Savior is exalted and my Savior is reigning. My Savior is enjoying the perfect fellowship of his heavenly Father. And in Christ, I get a taste of this too, even now. And isn't that what the author of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, when he writes to the church, you church, have come, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. Christian, in Christ, we have come to celebrate his exaltation. We have come to celebrate his glory. And so this is what I mean when I say that Jesus desires glory. He desires to be in the presence of his Father. He desires to share in the glory that he had in the very beginning before you and I ever existed. Before there were any human beings to applaud his name. Jesus is God. And in this prayer, we learn more than simply that Jesus so appropriately desires this glory. But he deserves it. That's what we see in this prayer. He deserves this glory. Uh, now, on one hand, this is a very obvious point to make. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is and always will be glorious. He's not more glorious now than he was before. And yet, when we read this prayer carefully, it becomes clear that Jesus proved his worthiness, his weight, 
his glory. Jesus demonstrated his majesty. Jesus showed the world and he showed his heavenly father that there is none like him. That's the goal of today. Just for a few minutes, taking our eyes off of ourselves. And yes, admittedly, taking our eyes off of this world. And for a moment, putting our eyes on the radiant Son of God and recognizing not only that He desires glory, but that He deserves glory. There's none like Him. In, in that sense, Jesus proved that He deserves glory with the life He lived and with the death He died. And we need to understand this if we are to worship Christ rightly. Look at John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus prayed these words on his way to the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right, the hour, the hour begins with the, the moment of his death, and ends with his resurrection. The hour is the appointed time for Jesus' earthly ministry to come to an end. The hour includes his agony. It, it, it is his arrest, though he committed no crime. It is his conviction, though he made no defense for himself. It is his beating, though he lifted no finger in retaliation. It is his crucifixion, though he never ever sinned. Right? All of this is the hour. And Jesus is staring into the dark tunnel of suffering when he says, the hour has come. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Jesus expects to be glorified in his suffering. That the glorification that Jesus desires cannot be separated from the suffering that Jesus demands. It is not merely, it is not merely in his return to the Father that Jesus is glorified, but it is in his willingness to, to heed his Father's call to the cross. It's in his, it's in, it's in his obedience to his Father's calling. That Jesus, who is already glorious, is glorified. To put it bluntly, Jesus is as glorified in his hanging on a bloody cross as he is sitting on a golden throne. The, the prayer of Jesus is that he would be glorified and that he would himself glorify his Father. But look at verse 2. This is the means by which Jesus will be glorified and subsequently the means by which he will glorify his Father. This is what will happen. This is what will happen so that Jesus can be glorified. Jesus prays in verse 2, since you, Father, have given him me, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Right? Jesus has authority over all. Right? Jesus has authority over, over everyone. Right? Over Americans and over Australians, over Africans and Russians, everyone on the globe, everyone who's ever been made by God, 
Jesus has received authority over them all. It's been given to him by God the Father. And that includes the authority to judge and the authority to condemn. But that is not what Jesus says here. No, the emphasis here is on Jesus' power to save, to give eternal life to every single person the Father has chosen from all these nations. None of these will be lost. All of these will be saved. And what is salvation? Well, notice here Jesus calls it eternal life. Notice how Jesus describes it in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We think of eternal life as a place of rest, right? a place without crying or pain, a place without recessions, without COVID-19, without sickness, without depression, without racism, without violence, without death. And all this is true, wonderfully true. Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. But let the prayer of Jesus sink in. This is eternal life, that they know you and that they know me. Eternal life is knowing God. And when I say knowing God, I'm not talking about knowing God the way you know or don't know algebra, the way you know how to succeed on a standardized test, the way you even know Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. No, I'm talking about knowing God the way a son knows a father, the way a daughter knows a mother, the way a husband knows a wife. Right? This kind of knowledge is not academic. It's not intellectual. This kind of knowledge is, is intimate. It's not merely filling up your head with facts about God. Please don't come back to the gathering of Mount Vernon Baptist Church just to fill your head up with facts about God. It's filling up your heart with trust in God. I love how New Testament scholar Don Carson put it. He wrote, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. So, friends and family, the past three months have been hard. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have seen your salary reduced. Many of you have lost out on experiences that you were looking forward to. But the silver lining to this dark cloud has been time for many of us with family. Right? Parents have had quality time with their teenagers or even college age or even beyond college age kids. Right? Singles have returned home to quarantine with family. Why? Because when all is said and done, what we really care about are not big houses and fancy cars and long vacations and nice dinners. What we really care about is being known and being loved. And that's how Jesus Christ describes eternal life. That's how he describes salvation. The last three nights have been hard. We're facing riots that we haven't seen as a country for decades. In the, in the days ahead, political pundits will get on screen and explain what went wrong, how 
Political protesters from out of state came in to foment division. They will explain how mayors didn't do enough or did too much. They will go back and forth on the topic of systemic racism, and they will debate how to move forward. But at the heart of it, at the heart of it is this, this reality that, that Christians ought to know better than anyone. Everyone wants to be known and loved. At the heart of it, nobody wants to be seen as a statistic or a threat. And nobody wants to be lumped in with a, with a group or dismissed with a crowd. Just look at the mantra of the protesters that gained popularity a, a few years ago. And just for a moment, siphon out the politics. But listen to the words, Black Lives Matter. You can criticize the protesters all you want, but double-click on that statement, and you realize everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to, to matter. Everybody wants to be seen. So Jesus speaks into a broken world, a, a world where Samaritans were overlooked and dismissed and tread upon. A world where Jews were, were praying against Gentiles and Gentiles were mocking Jews. And Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you. Like you've given me authority over everybody on the planet and you've given some to me to save, to give eternal life. And this is eternal life that all those that you have given me will know you and they'll know me. So eternal life is, is God looking at you and saying, hey, I see you. You matter to me. You can know me. Just don't come by yourself. Come with Christ and you can know me and I'll know you and everything will be okay. What is the path to eternal life? Look at verse 4. Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When Jesus prayed this prayer, he had yet to die on the cross, but he was on the way. It was nearly done. It's such a sure thing, in fact, that Jesus can speak about it as if it already happened. Everything the Father gave Jesus to do, Jesus did. Jesus faithfully did his job. He faithfully accomplished his mission. He perfectly fulfilled his ministry. And when Jesus went to be in the presence of God his Father, he got to enjoy the work that he had done. So let's suppose for a moment that I am a master carpenter. It is a stretch to suppose this. But take a moment and try. It's widely accepted that there is no one as skilled as I am. No one can compare with me in carpentry. Everything I build, whether it's a cabinet or a chair, is cut and carved and put together to perfection. And one day I'm commissioned to build a work that is bigger and more beautiful than anything that I've ever done before. I'm going to build a table, not just any table, a table fit for a huge family 
a table fit for a feast, a table of the finest oak and, and carved with the most intricate and beautiful scenes. And when I finish the work, it is amazing. And I present it to the one who commissioned it. And he says, I did everything that he asked of me and more, and I did it perfectly. And he whispers in my ear, well done. Brothers and sisters, on the day of his exaltation, when Jesus was once again in the presence of his heavenly Father, he undoubtedly heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus' masterpiece is not a wooden table, but a chosen people. The people God the Father gave him the people God the Son saved on a wooden cross. The people God the Spirit filled with himself. Jesus accomplished our salvation. He did the hardest thing anyone can do. He allowed the glory of his divinity to be eclipsed by the humility of humanity and the shadow of the cross. Jesus obeyed his Father's charge to go to that cross. And he did so willingly. He did so completely. Jesus knew that before he could share, listen carefully to this, Jesus knew that before he could share in the heavenly glory of his Father, he must first endure the sharp pain of the cross. Suffering must come before glory. The cross must come before the crown. And so do you see now why I say Jesus deserves glory? Yes, he is glorious. He never lost his glory. But when Jesus took on flesh, he did what no human being could ever do. He did what no human being would ever do. He counted his life nothing for the sake of his father, for the sake of his mission. And can you believe it? For the sake of sinners like you and me. If you know Frodo from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, well, you know what makes him so special. It's not his size. He's a tiny hobbit. It's not his speed. It's not his strength or his agility. No, what makes Frodo special is his faithfulness. Gandalf entrusted Frodo with the ring because he knew Frodo was the least likely to give in to the temptation to use that ring to rule the world. There was a humility in Frodo, lacked by everyone around him. And at the end of the story, when the whole kingdom is bending on their knee and cheering the hobbit, the great irony is that that hobbit was the last one to demand praise. Only the one willing to send glory packing is the one to receive glory in the end. And that's Jesus. He was willing to send glory packing. And he is the one who deserves our praise. Sometime soon, we will be together again, all together again in this room. We will sing and we will pray together. We will enjoy fellowship with one another. We will learn, we will hug. We will learn how to grow together in the Christian faith. 
We will talk about months of isolation. We'll talk about racism. We'll continue to think about what we can do to be bolder and more loving and kinder and humbler. But let's never forget the reason we gather. It's not to become a better version of ourselves. It's to make much of Christ. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. Let's never forget that the heart of our message, the heart of the Christian message is not sanctification, our sanctification, but Christ's humiliation and exaltation. 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So yes, there is a lot that we need to do, and I know that you are looking for something to do. I know you're looking for a way to change, and I would draw your attention to the previous 11 or 12 sermons. There's a lot we need to work on. Right? We're not the perfect church. We're a long road. We have a long road ahead of us. But more than anything, it is our duty simply to marvel at the fact that the one who desire, desired glory is the only one who truly deserved it and the only one willing to send glory packing on his way to the cross. And this brings me to my third and final observation. Jesus shares glory. Jesus shares glory. So on one hand, Jesus shares his glory by revealing himself to us, by showing us who he is, right? by, by teaching us about himself so that we can know him. Jesus shares his glory the way, kind of like the way an anchor shares the news. Look at John chapter 17, verse 22. When Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that he's revealed himself to them. He shared his glory with them in the sense that he has granted them access by the power of the Holy Spirit to the very glory of God, a glory that brings salvation. But there are other passages in Scripture that make it clear. There are other passages in Scripture that make it abundantly clear that the true believer will truly share in the glory of Christ. Somehow, Jesus' majesty and his beauty and his wonder and his splendor are going to be shared with us. I'm thinking now of Romans 8 verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Can you believe that it says that? So that we, we sinful human beings, might be glorified with Jesus Christ? It doesn't, this doesn't mean we will be God. Of course not. It doesn't mean that, that angels will be bowing down and singing our praises. Of course not. I know a lot about what this doesn't mean, but what does it mean? It means that at the end of your life, if you persevere in your faith, there will be a reward. 
not a reward you have earned, right? Our faithfulness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Faithfulness is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God graciously gives to his children. It's not a reward that you will have earned, but it is a reward given to all who suffer in the name of Christ. A reward for all those who accept the trials and crosses of this world as an opportunity to praise and love and serve and rejoice in God. God is faithful. God is loving. God is kind. And he will never turn his back on those who follow him by his grace to the end. Man, I don't know what to do about this broken world other than preach the gospel but I know that whatever's out there, whatever's in front of me, I'm going to keep my eyes on Christ and follow him to the very end. My reward is not here. My reward is in heaven. We follow through. We follow him. We follow Christ through viruses. And we follow him through riots. We follow him through a world marred by abortion and racism. We follow him through cancer and through unemployment we follow him through the loneliness of singleness, and we follow him through the conflict of marriage. We follow him when our cities are burning, and we follow him when our, our heart is aching. We follow him through unbelieving children. We follow him when our friends abandon us, and we follow him when our body fails us. We follow him through whatever comes, because when we suffer for him, we can be sure we will be glorified with him. Listen to what Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Day. There's something happening in the life of the believer even now as the Holy Spirit is inside of you. You are in the process of personal reformation, personal revitalization, transformation. God is at work in the believer as the believer breathes, as the believer endures. God is at work renewing us. And then Paul writes... For this slight momentary affliction, right? So look at your life. What is afflicting you, right? Is it anxiety? Is it physical pain? Is it uncertainty? Is it not knowing what to do or how to make sense of the world? Is it where you're going to be in five years? Is it abuse? Paul writes to the Christian. He's writing to the believer. He says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, this is our Savior. This is what our Savior is doing. I'm not saying we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't roll up our sleeves, get out in the world, clean up the glass, talk to our neighbors, serve the poor, 
as we're doing all of that, preach the gospel, we need to be doing all these things. But what I'm saying is while we are out there doing the work that we trust God has called us to do, God is at work in us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison should we willingly suffer with him. But make no mistake, Jesus will not share his glory with those who want their own. You have probably never heard of a scientist by the name of Paul Lewis. Paul Lewis got a small taste of success doing research on tuberculosis at the beginning of the 20th century, toward the end of World War I. This whetted his appetite for the praise of man, for glory. The University of Iowa came calling, came knocking on Paul Lewis's door more than once, offering this great post to create a research institution in Iowa. And no offense to Iowans, but Paul Lewis didn't want to go there. Paul Lewis didn't want to be directing a research, research facility in Iowa. No, he wanted to find a cure for something. And so he wanted to make a big discovery. He had bigger dreams. He stayed on with a lab at the University of Pennsylvania for years and years, but he never made that discovery. He never made a name for himself. And then, at, a, at the age of about 50, Paul Lewis decided that the door of opportunity for his big day was coming to an end, beginning to close, and so he decided to take a risk. An opportunity presented itself to do research on yellow fever, a dangerous virus spread by a bite of an infected mosquito. And this meant Paul Lewis traveling to Brazil and sadly, in the midst of his research in Brazil, he caught the virus and he died. Now, his biographer noted that it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to end this way. Lewis had carved out for himself a very respectable, a very stable career. And if he had been patient, well, he would have been rewarded with some praise. He was never going to be the goat, but he would have been known. He loved the idea of great success. He loved the idea, though, of being the best. And in the words of his biographer, his failure to win what he loved killed him. It sent him into the jungle where he died. He was living for his own glory. What about you? Are you living for his glory or are you living for your own? Brothers and sisters, Jesus will not share his glory with those who want their own. There's only one path to glory, and it was walked by Jesus Christ only by following him. Right? Only by prizing him above every earthly treasure. Only by loving his name more than you love your name will you find this eternal weight of glory. And so for all of you who are watching who don't know Christ, maybe you're rattled by this, this strange world we live in where we can't even, we can barely endure society being shut down by a tiny virus. And here we are, our own sinful hearts exposed by racism, our own violent inclinations exposed by rioting. And maybe you're wondering, uh, God, where are you? 
What in the world are you doing? Why are you letting things get out of control? And if that's you, I simply want to plead with you and let you know that God is here. God is watching. God is never, ever taken surprise by anything. In this world, there is always pain. There is always heartache. There is always suffering. There is always violence. And every day filled with sin and wrongdoing is a reminder that there is a better world where the glory of God shines forth so beautifully in the hearts of people who have been changed so dramatically that they don't even desire to do what is wrong. And you can have a heart like that if only today you would submit your life to Jesus Christ. If only today you would recognize that Jesus is the only answer for a world that is tearing itself apart. Trust in him. Believe that Jesus Christ, in all his glory, lived a perfect life. That he died on a wooden cross for sinners like you and like me. That he rose from the dead and was exalted at the right hand of God, the Heavenly Father, returning to the glory that he knew from the very beginning, that he did all of that so that sinners like you and me could know him. And there's nothing for us to do but to acknowledge that Jesus is God. To say goodbye to our former way of life, whatever it is. To trust in Him the way you trust in your mattress when you lay down at night to go to sleep. And then by His grace and for His glory to follow Him all the days of your life. I'm not saying it's an easy path to walk. There's too many Bible verses that make it clear that the Christian life is not easy. But what I am asking is that on this last day, to the best of our knowledge, that Mount Vernon Baptist Church is shut down as a congregation, I'm pleading with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to join us and to worship him with us in spirit and in truth. For several weeks, members of Mount Vernon, I've asked you to look at your spiritual house at all the rooms in your house that need to be renovated. And, and, and I do believe that you need to spend time thinking about yourself. I do want you to take advantage of the time you have to ask if you are doing what you ought to be doing and, and, and feeling what you ought to be feeling about the Lord and about the gospel. But today, is there is so obviously so much that's wrong, more than anything, today I want you to take your eyes off of your own heart. Take your eyes off of your own sins. Take the eyes off of your own fretting, off of this world that is so damaged and broken. And for this moment, put your eyes on Jesus Christ and acknowledge that the Bible and the world and your life should be all about him. I'm reminded of the words from Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it, labor in vain. We've been thinking about our spiritual house. Let's end this series by recognizing unless the Lord is building the house, we're building it in vain. We need Christ glorified at work in our lives this day and every day forevermore. Jesus is the builder. He desires glory. He deserves glory. And wonder of wonders, he shares glory with those who have been transformed by his gospel 
and are therefore willing to suffer in his name. Regardless of what's ever in the news, regardless of the fractures of a fallen world, let's come together next week more than anything for him. And before I pray, would you spend a few moments now, wherever you are, and however quiet your living room can be right now, would you spend a few moments now meditating on the glory of Christ? And then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we have to confess that we're awfully good at thinking about ourselves. We're awfully good about thinking about what we need, about what we want. We do give a lot of attention thinking about how we need to grow. Many of us are so very aware of our own failures. We are mindful of the ways people have wronged us. We're mindful of the ways we've wronged others. We, we go through life uh, so aware of all the ways we fall short and even aware of the ways that we succeed. We are experts in ourselves. And Father, we know that to some extent that's inevitable and to some extent it's appropriate. We are to examine ourselves. But, Father, we want to be a people who, who know you. This is eternal life, knowing you. We want to be experts in your word. Not so that Mount Vernon Baptist Church in any way appears to be the smartest church in the city. We don't want that. Oh, but we want to be a people who know you, who are known by you, who know your character, who know your power, who have experienced your intervention in our lives, who can talk about you, who can be amazed at you, who recognize that you are the maker of all things, including men and women, everyone made in your image and likeness. You are the just God. Lord, I began the sermon mentioning how I don't know the hearts of those who have done wrong, but you do, and you will repay each one according to his deeds. You are the righteous God. You are the judge. We don't finally have to be the judge. We are aware of that. Father, we want to know you. We want to know your mercy, as, as Pat led us to think about a few minutes ago. Lord, we desire justice, but how much more do we desire mercy, that you would be merciful to us for the thoughts that we think, for the feelings that we feel, for the things that we've done. Oh, Lord, would you be merciful to us? And Father, we pray as we, as we wrap up this series of Sundays of separation, would you bring us together again to make much of you, regardless of how riddled the world is with disappointment and devastation, would you help us to make much of you, to proclaim Christ and all the more as we see the day approaching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.